What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Surf and Sales podcast. We are just getting started here in season two. I believe this might be episode four. Is that right, Richard? Yeah, episode four, season two, episode four. I'm Scott Lees here with my good friend and partner, Richard Harris. And we are brought to you today and for the entire rest of the month of January by our good friends and sponsors, partners at Lead411, Vidyard, Salesforce Revenue Cloud, and our latest brand new sponsor, Wingman. And uh, Wingman is actually offering a 14-day trial when you mentioned surf and sales. Wingman listens to every sales call and based on what they're talking about, prompts you with cue cards, gives suggestions in real time, and helps salespeople navigate through tricky situations on, uh, on every sales call. So check out our, our sponsors. They're good, good people, good products, and they'll help you and your, uh, your company grow. And oddly enough, good, good segue here. Our guest today is the CEO and founder of Wingman, Shruti Kapoor, who's coming to us live from, uh, from India. I have no idea what time it is there, Shruti, but it's, uh, it's a morning in California and right at lunchtime here in, in Austin, Texas. So we appreciate you spending some time with us and, uh, and having a chat today. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, it's this. Um, going to be midnight shortly. Oh my goodness! All right, you. I had no idea you are a trooper. Thank you. Thanks for that. <laughs> we'll, we'll try. We'll try not to keep you. Uh, keep you up all night. So. <laughs> well, I, I gave my best. You know, little snippet here of, of what I think. You know, Wingman is is up to. But why don't you tell people? You know, just real briefly, who you are and and what you're building and and you know, what the sales motion and, and your experience is like, so people have some context for, uh, for our conversation. Absolutely. Um, maybe I'll start with the who you are part, uh, which sometimes is easy to answer and some, sometimes it's hard. Um, so, you know, I uh, have been spending like almost a decade in the finance space before I switched over uh, and started learning a little bit about sales. Um, started out as an investment banker at Morgan Stanley, uh, spent a decade investing in a very early stage tech. In fact, a lot of it was university research. Uh, and then, um, you know, a few years back, found myself uh, trying to figure out the go-to-market for um, a fintech company uh, when they were just entering a new market, which was, in their case, India. Uh, and at that point, you know, I had literally no idea about sales. Um, and, you know, very quickly, of course, uh, figuring out go-to-market became uh, all about figuring out uh, sales processes, hiring. Um, and so that was, uh, you know, uh, like my intro into the world of sales. Um, it was really uh, interesting, but, you know, because I was coming from a different background, uh, I was constantly asking questions like, you know, do I have the right data? Am I looking at this straight? Um, am I making the right kind of forecast? Um, and that's kind of what uh, got me uh, more interested in uh, looking at, um, you know, what was there in the CRM, what wasn't there in the CRM, um, and, uh, you know, was definitely led to the birth of Wingman. Um, now, with Wingman, what, um, you know, I'm trying to do here is, um, you know, effectively answer and help uh, with some of the questions that I had in my previous role, uh, which is, you know, when I'm losing a deal, why am I losing a deal, um, right? Uh, uh, when my sales reps are doing well, uh, who's uh, doing well and why are they doing better than the rest, right? And what can I do to scale that up? Um, so that's, that's kind of how that journey has started. And 
like you mentioned, right, that was a good summary of what Wingman does. It listens to every call. Uh, it's supposed to be a Wingman for the sales rep during the sales call. So it gives them feedback, um, but it's also supposed to be, um, you know, kind of the dashboard that the whole sales org uh, and the leadership can look at uh, to decide, you know, what's working, what's not working, what the market is saying. Now, when you're coming up, you know, and, and looking at different uh, companies to, to get involved with and invest in from your, your days um, working for the venture venture firm, what were the, the traits and attributes that, that you were looking for in the founding team? And, and, and how did you, you know, kind of move forward and try to embody those, those traits when you became a founder yourself? Yeah, so it's a, um, you know, it's, it's interesting when you've been on both sides of the table, uh, right? So uh, the model that we were following, and this is a firm called Intellectual Ventures, um, you know, uh, one of the main investors there was Bill Gates. And uh, the, the kind of the main, um, you know, thought process there was to say that, listen, um, there are people who can create good technology, and then there are people who are great at business, and uh, often they are not the same person, right? Um, and so uh, the model there was very different from, you know, a typical venture capital model where you're expecting to invest in the founding team, um, you know, based on the conviction that they can, of course, create the right type of technology or product, uh, but also uh, have the right, um, you know, ability to take it to market, right? There we were trying to decouple the two and say that, you know, you have these great technologies coming out of university uh, research. Uh, but often those technologists are not interested in the commercialization or, you know, don't have the ability to do commercialization. Um, so in that case, you know, it was a little bit different. Um, you know, of course, there we were looking at it uh, specifically from the merits of the technology. Uh, but what we realized, and, you know, that was also part of the evolution was to say, um, you know, it's important to have great technology, but if you have uh, the people who came up with the technology who don't have any interest or any, um, you know, savviness towards how do you commercialize it, it's still hard, even if you want to take it away and make something else. Yeah, um, I, I think that's a question there, Shruti. Mm -hmm. um, and I agree, I agree with everything you said. I'm, I'm known to sort of poke down on buzzwords. You know, can they take it to market, right? And I understand, you know, you sort of have this smart product person, you know, in the States, we sort of see them as engineers, right? Coming out of the Stanfords and the Harvards mm -hmm. and those people, right? Um, and, and through no fault of their own, they don't, their mind isn't quite wired yet on the business side, right? What, so if you're investing, right. And, and I think this is what helped you and tell me if I'm wrong, but how can you tell if this person who this technologist can take it to market, right? So here comes some great ride sharing application, right? And Maybe it's for only people with motorcycles, whatever, right? How do you know? How do you know that this technologist, who's very smart, understands how to go to market? Because that, as the VC, I think that's always the biggest piece that that y'all have to look at is a: is it you know? Do we think it's viable? And two: what is it? So, what do you? How do you define that? It's a long question. Sorry. Yeah. So, you know, I think. The short answer is that often you don't, uh, right? And that's pretty much why VCs today have moved away from, um, you know, saying that I'll just invest in a smart technologist. Uh, and therefore, a lot of VCs used to come in 
at a very early stage, right? With uh, like literally zero market validation uh, to today saying, listen, I have no way of knowing whether this person will be able to evolve themselves into a good uh, you know, person who can take this market, right? And therefore they say, you know what, let's just try and find some early proof, uh, right? So let's see if they have hustled and uh, you know, gotten a little bit of revenue, a little bit of customers uh, before we invest in them, right? So kind of that bar of, uh, the first big check from an institutional investor has been going up over the years uh, for two reasons, right? One is um, there is enough competition in the market today um, where, you know, even if you have a great product, you might never make it. Uh, and two, uh, you it's, it's kind of gotten a bit easier uh, to create new products, right? With a lot of it being, um, you know, today you have good tools on top of which you can build, right? So you don't, Earlier, it used to be much harder to do that. And therefore, you know, if you had to choose up, you know, what is going to be uh, able to give you a successful company, you would say, it's okay. If I have a great product, I will eventually make it. And so it's hard enough for people to make great products. Um, so I think that, you know, nobody has an easy answer to it. And that's why they've just said, you know, let's, let's delay and try and reduce our risk by getting as much validation as we can. Uh, even from the market side, uh, before we jump in as an investor. Got it. Are there traits that you see in these technologists, um, even if it's energetic, introvert, extrovert, is it um, they can tell a story a certain way? Are those the kinds of things, like even if it's early, even if they have five or 10 customers, right, at the, at the early stage, right, that sort of seed round. Um, and I'm not sure what rounds you come, you used to come in at. So, you know, that can help, but are there those kind of personality traits you also look at? So I think the maybe the easiest personality trait to define um, is, you know, are they able to connect the dots, right? Uh, and sometimes that's not necessary that they've demonstrated so that with- What's an example where someone cannot connect the dots? Um, so <laughs> You know, sometimes if you're coming from a business side, it might seem hard to even imagine that, right? <laughs> um, but, but you know, uh, to, to, to see an evidence of that in a pure technologist would be somebody who's done a little bit of uh, kind of interdisciplinary work or research, uh, right? Where they're at least able to take their particular thought process or uh, technology and apply that to something different, right? If at least that thought process exists, right? Um, then you kind of know that um, maybe they'll be able to make some leaps uh, in the future. Um, the place where we used to come in, and that's why it's a little bit different from a typical VC world is we would literally come in uh, when, you know, this was something like, like and this, this was not just like software technology, right? This is biotech, this was material sciences, uh, and so it will literally be like a material in a lab, uh, which just had some very interesting properties. Maybe it was a coating that you could put on your car and, you know, then it would not get dusty as quickly as it does today, right? Or something. Um, so in, in a lot of those cases, then at least we were looking at it, it was to say, can this person ask the right questions and be invested in, uh, you know, mentally enough to solve some of the things that are less exciting as a pure researcher versus, you know, scaling up, uh, can I make a ton of this material versus, you know, 10 grams of it, uh, things like that, right? So it's, I mean, it's, it's a little bit different, uh, but of course, 
you know, uh, having uh, raised funds uh, recently, having gone through the Y Combinator, uh, you know, incubator program, uh, I've definitely seen the other part of uh, the traditional VC investing uh, as well. Um, and I, I see that uh, same thing, right? Like I think a lot of times when investors are asking a lot of the questions, it's really about uh, not just knowing what you've done or what you can do, but about like knowing whether you can scale yourself up because whatever you do at any stage in the startup, you know, it's like your job profile is changing every six months. Um, yeah. So how, you know, how good are you at changing, uh, you know, what you need yeah. to do? I want to I want to touch on something that that you said you you, you mentioned um, you know the competition and and you decided to to build a company and enter an emerging space but one full of competition with some well known competitors uh, in there. I, I think the, the the question well one of the questions on my mind is like why. Why, why go into a space that's already crowded versus maybe trying to go into a space that's more, more greenfield and, and emerging or, or tackle, you know, something that is, is old and kind of antiquated? What's the, what's the appeal, I guess, and what gets you excited, even when you look around and you see these big competitors, uh, you know, standing in the way? Yeah, so, yeah, I think with... So many great technologists and products in the market today, uh, you can literally say that there is no field that is not crowded, um, right? Like there is, you know, I, if there is no obvious competition, there is probably, uh, you know, some, some sort of competition there anyways in terms of solving a problem, right? Maybe just looking at it differently. Uh, when I started thinking about this, of course, one part of it was, uh, how strongly I felt about the experience that I had, um, you know, in uh, running and, uh, uh, you know, scaling up uh, the go-to-market or sales team in my previous org. But the second part of it was, uh, you know, I looked at the market and I said, uh, okay, you know, clearly people have had this idea before. Uh, let me go and speak to some of the customers of, um, you know, of those large companies and see what has their experience been, right? Like you have a promise of a, uh, you know, shiny new object, uh, right, which can do a ton of things. And then uh, there is a certain way in which people use it and actually get value out of it. Um, and so I went and spoke to a lot of customers of those companies. And what I realized was, um, you know, it wasn't so much a fault of the problem as um, how people think about, um, you know, what they will do and what they actually do, right? So in, the, in, in my context, uh, a lot of sales leaders will constantly tell you that I want to do sales coaching, right? And it's a top priority, um, you know, and I know all of the reasons why I should be doing it, uh, but do they actually do it? Like more than 60% of the time, no, uh, right? Uh, it's just something aspirational. Um, they know the reasons for it, but it just doesn't become a priority, right? Within, you know, between you trying to hit quota, hiring new people, ramping them up, all of those things come in the way. Uh, and so what what I realized and what my uh, unique insight there was to say, listen, um, when people adopt a tool uh, to say that I want to do sales coaching doesn't mean that sales coaching happens, right? Uh, it still gives them a big mental satisfaction uh, that, hey, you know, I now have this thing that helps me get better at doing sales coaching, uh, but very often they don't. Right, like we ask them. So, when was the last time you used the tool? 
uh, and they would be like, hey, it's been more than a month since I actually went into, you know, whichever conversation intelligence tool they were using. Um, and so what we then decided to do was to say, listen, uh, can we actually remove the sales manager as the bottleneck in the process for improving sales coaching or for improving uh, the conversations that their reps were having? Um, and, and that's kind of uh, where we kind of differ in, uh, you know, the point of view and the philosophy behind building yeah. man. And, and when you and when you think about bringing it to market and and the distribution and and selling, it, if if I'm a founder here in America, I'm not thinking, oh, I'm gonna I, I need to sell this product in India, for example. You're in India. How do you go? How did you think about distribution? Like, did you have you been focused on on India? Do you migrate to APAC or 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 Europe, or do you look at it with eyes of like, we've got to sell into, you know, North American uh, tech companies, you know, straight away. T talk, to, talk to us about the, uh, the strategy there. Uh, this is totally new and interesting information, you know, for me, I've, I've never thought about it um, this way. So there's got to be some potential advantages there for you, as well as maybe some disadvantages. So I'd, I'd like to learn more about that. Yeah, so, um, you know, given that uh, Vignan is, um, you know, conversation intelligence tool, it's definitely tied in to the language pretty closely. All right, so that's automatically been one of our, um, you know, constraints and guiding lights in deciding where to sell it, right? Um, so when we are building the product, uh, we had the option of saying, do we uh, try to build it for, uh, you know, different languages that are, uh, you know, more common in APAC or in India, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, instead of building probably it for a challenge, a, a challenge in India, given how many different dialects and languages are spoken, right? Exactly. Um, and so, you know, uh, what that did was it automatically defined the market that we wanted to go after, right? So we chose English. We said um, there are definitely various reasons why we would want to ch choose English, and you know, it of course makes building. Uh, you know, the initial versions of the product simpler. Uh, but of course, there's also a lot of validation to say that, um, you know, selling to tech companies in the US, um, you know, they are typically early adopters, uh, you're going to, you know, be fighting less of an uphill battle. Um, so, you know, those two things kind of tied in. Uh, and that meant that, uh, unlike a lot of companies that can explore uh, different markets, maybe start with local and then, uh, you know, try and switch geographies, for us on day one, it was clear that we wanted to focus on the North America market. Um, so while that was clear, that uh, didn't necessarily mean that we had um, you know, a good starting point there. Uh, my two co-founders uh, have spent nearly a decade uh, in the Bay Area. Uh, they're both great uh, tech people uh, having worked at you know, Google, Uber, the likes. Uh, but, uh, you know, we still didn't have like a good um, kind of um, foundational um, you know, network that we could tap into there. Um, so thankfully for us, that happened with Y Combinator. Um, you know, one was, of course, that network is really strong and it also, um, you know, forced us to kind of spend uh, a good amount of time in the market uh, in the US, just, um, you know, understand uh, the cultural context and the uh, sales processes there better. And uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how we got there. So what are the three biggest challenges 
doing that in terms of like executing on that, right? So you've, you've come up with the strategy, you know what you're going to do. Where did you start? Was it literally, we're just going to start calling people? Did you go the traditional, let's go friends and family and who do we know? Um, you know, you've got a, I assume you have a, a, a good list of numbers on your cell phone for speed dialing and the funding and startup space. Like, how did you start to execute on that? Yeah, so, um, you know, it was a combination of both. Uh, and I think that's um, also the advice that I give to people, uh, you know, other startups who now uh, ask us how we did that initially, uh, right? So uh, we definitely did our fair share of completely cold uh, outbound and setting up meetings, uh, right? Like, you know, literally saying, hey, I'm going to be uh, in so-and-so city, uh, you know, could we catch up for coffee? And I just want to get feedback on what we are building. Uh, and this is literally, you know, back when we even started building, uh, I made quite a few trips and spent a good amount of time in the US. Um, and then the other part of it was definitely reaching out to, um, you know, the network. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't have, like I said, you know, a close network in the immediate friends and family circle. Um, so we kind of had to, you know, do the, extend the network, you know, do your, second degree and third degree connects and tap into those. Um, but, you know, I think as a very early stage startup, um, you kind of just have to hustle your way into whatever you can, uh, right? Um, and we tried both of them. And I so think was, both of them so gave what us was a hustle. Lessons. Give us an, can you give us an example of a hustle you went through? Like, okay, this is exactly what I did. And I finally got a meeting with X. And if you're comfortable sharing the company name, you can. If not, we, you know, you can at least maybe share the, the title of the type of company it was. Yeah, so I think, um, so, so, you know, one kind of hustle was uh, literally I identified uh, everybody in my first degree network who was, um, you know, in the States at that point, uh, went through their, uh, like literally spent, you know, nights going through their connection list of first degree connections to say, hey, these are the people who are of interest to me. And then reaching out to them and saying, hey, would you, would you be okay to just introduce me to this person? Um, and, you know, uh, this is the context why I want to speak to this person, uh, right? So did a fair amount of that. And then when I reached out to those people, it was like, listen, I'm going to be here. Um, can we just meet, uh, right? Um, so it was, it was a very basic, uh, no, no well-defined agenda kind of uh, So how do you, right, so, you, so now you got the meeting. How do you get them interested enough that, and, and I guess there's two questions. One, get them interested enough to, to want to take a next step, but also, again, because you're in a crowded space, conversational intelligence is a crowded space, you're obviously going to go, well, how do you compare to these guys, right? How do you handle both of those things? Yeah, so, you know, while, um, you know, in the, in the cocoons and bubbles that we hear of uh, these technologies day in and day out, uh, it does come across as crowded. And remember, this is way back in 2018 when it wasn't necessarily as well known uh, of a concept. Um, one of the, uh, you know, what what is also true is that the penetration for the technology is uh, still less than five percent, uh, right, in within the inside sales segment. Um, so. It's, it's not that we, um, you know, exclusively run into people who are already using something in the space, right? Very often, uh, it's people who haven't used anything. They might have heard of something, but haven't done something. 
Um, and when we met them, right, uh, often the questions were not so much around, um, you know, how is A better than B? It was really, hey, you know, will people be okay to even record their calls? Uh, like, how do I tell a customer that I want to record this? And, you know, I, I can see the benefits. Just from like, just from like a comfort like level, like yeah. from a comfort level. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, like, yeah, I need to ask consent. And like, I don't think my reps will be okay to have that conversation. Um, right. Um, so, so, you know, a lot of uh, the convincing wasn't necessarily on will this be useful, but it was like, um, how do I actually, uh, you know, adopt it and uh, use it, right? I can see how this could potentially be useful. So there were definitely a lot of conversations at that stage, right? And uh, even today, I think the great thing is it has become much more accepted uh, for a conversation to get recorded. Yeah. But, um, you know, even if you speak to people, um, you know, maybe not on the coast in the US or you speak to people in Canada, uh, very often, uh, you know, people who haven't come across this technology as often, they'll be like, are you sure a customer will be okay with you recording the call? Like, what is in it for them? Um, so, so, you know, it's, it's, it's different types of uh, challenges and objections. Uh, and then the second part of it was definitely uh, to say, uh, hey, I've tried to coach my team uh, with sales calls. Uh, but would my team actually be okay with, uh, you know, their peers listening to their conversations? Like they're okay with the manager listening to it. Uh, but now that you're going to put it on the platform, you know, other people in the team can listen to it. Um, so, so, you know, there are lots of those barriers um, that today don't seem as big of a concern because mm -hmm. it's become more accepted as a technology yeah. space, but it's there. Now, <clears throat> now part of that hustle had to have been, you know, just like evangelizing the, the technology and the space and getting people acclimated and comfortable, um, you know, with, with utilizing it. And, you know, I know you have been a participant in, you know, sales communities uh, for a while now, for years. You've been in, in MSP for a long time. Um, how do you, how do I phrase this? How do you, you see, you know, a founder and a CEO like yourself getting involved in communities and participating, um, you know, given the time constraints that you have? And, and does that activity then pay off in the form of introductions, relationships, meetings, closed, you know, deals and partnerships and so forth? Um, that's what I want to know, because, you know, the rise of the micro community seemed to be a big thing, you know, last year. You've been involved in them for a while. You're still involved. I think you're even trying to get a little bit deeper involved. And I, and I wonder how many people don't get involved because they don't know if it's worth their time or the ROI. So maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, so it's, um, you know, it, it definitely takes a lot of time. Um, the good thing, of course, with... Uh, online communities is you can define, uh, you know, what time of the day and how much time you want to spend, right? Um, I think that there is definitely, a, you know, a trade-off in terms of, uh, you know, maybe you spend 30 minutes a day and you get a lot out of it. Maybe you spend three hours a day and maybe it starts to kind of plateau a little bit, uh, right? Um, what I think has been really valuable for me when I've been involved with the communities has just been the ability to um, 
you know, get in the head of the customer segment, uh, right? Uh, not so much to say that, you know, can you go and directly pitch the product somewhere uh, or, uh, you know, is somebody asking a question about this particular space? Uh, but just to be able to understand what are the questions people are asking, like what are the problems they are really having? What is top of mind for them? Um, and I think that's, uh, that's kind of the true value that these communities give you, uh, which is, um, you know, an open interaction um, and understanding of, um, you know, what's troubling people or, um, you know, what, what's the problems that they're facing. Um, uh, I think the second part of your question uh, was uh, like, you know, how do you, um, how do you say whether it's working for you, uh, right? Uh, it, yeah, how are, you, how are you measuring it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or are you so measuring think, it? No, so we are not measuring it. Um, uh, and uh, and as a founder, so of course, you know, I participate in some of these communities as a founder. I also have some of my team members who are part of the same communities. And I think we all get something slightly different from those communities. Um, but, you know, I think the, the right way to approach the communities is uh, to think of it as, a, um, you know, as a, um, you know, literally how you would think of your own immediate family or community where, uh, you know, for you to gain something out of it, first you need to form connects uh, connect with people and for you to be able to form those connects with people, um, you need to be able to have empathy and understand, you know, their problems. And that's why I think listening or just reading, observing is a big part of it. Uh, sometimes people go in there with the intent of only, um, you know, posting and making noise. Um, at least I, that's maybe not my personality it doesn't work so well for me like I don't go in with that approach uh, but I think you know it, it's the best thing that has happened in 2020 in some ways uh, right like the ability to go and um, literally form these networks and communities with people that you might not have otherwise been able to meet uh, and to be able to do that at your own time and terms. Yeah, it's fascinating because um, I love the micro community piece and, and I want to segue away from that for a second um, there's a lot of talk in the States, and I think there has been, and, it, and it's long overdue, about women leadership, women CEOs, women as VCs, women as founders, right? All of these, these things that, um, that we see and experience. And I'm curious as to your, what's that like in your world and your experience, you know, sort of in India? And then what's it like transferring to, to the U.S.? Are you still seeing or experiencing that sort of sexism where, where you're sort of immediately discounted just because you are a woman? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting question and I can talk a lot about that um, uh, and we maybe don't have that much time, but, <laughs> um, but you know, uh, so I think, uh, of course, you know, you know, I grew up with the gender that I have, right? Right. I don't question it every day. And I don't think it's, um, in so many ways, it's not so obvious to me because I'm living in that body day in and day out that, um, you know, that maybe the rest of the world sees that so differently, right? Um, so it, it's interesting, like when when I started the company or when I went through, um, you know, my uh, kind of educational and early professional life, um, I wasn't so much, wondering, you know, am I being put at a disadvantage? Am I being discounted from certain opportunities, et cetera? That wasn't a daily conversation in my head. 
um interestingly enough um and and you know like i didn't you know i wasn't like carrying across when i decided to start the company right it wasn't that i wanted women in a leadership position i it was just me and i had to do something and i did it uh, but when i went for uh, y combinator and you know of course i kind of went in um, so i've grown up with the world view of you know everything is equal everything is the same i can do what i want to do um and then i went for the program and then um i was surprised that one of the scheduled um programs for the first week uh, of this was you know female founders um, you know dinner or networking event or uh, something else and then uh, ahead of the fundraise uh, again there are uh, events specifically uh, catered for uh, women founders um and i was somewhat shocked uh, right and i was wondering like why do you need a separate event uh, right like isn't fundraising the same for men and women um and you know while it sounds naive when i say that because i've been through that process uh it's uh it is shocking uh, right uh, because also you kind of view um a very capitalist uh institution and a country and a setup uh to you know just identify the best talent or identify uh, whatever is the best and you know pay for it but somehow that doesn't translate to uh you know diversity and equality all the time um and so you know when i think about this as um should it be different um do women uh, are women viewed differently um i was definitely exposed to the fact that women are viewed differently um at least in the fundraise process at least what i heard from my immediate peers at y combinator who were also fundraising at the same time uh people were being asked questions like um you know if there was a woman founder um uh, ceo um you know investors turned to their male peers and said are you sure you are okay working under this woman like that's not a question a man would be uh, like a woman would be asked to say are you okay working under this man yeah um, yeah people were asked questions like what are your plans of having children you would not get asked that question in interview process because no, i've never i've never been asked job. i've never been asked that question before my mom my mom tells that story of like in the 70s like her boss in the interview said you're not planning to have more children are you like literally challenging her right like it's just crazy that it's what's it's the 70s so that's what 40 or 50 years later and it's still prevalent uh, ugh, gross yeah so. and and this is like all in silicon valley stories yeah. right? this is not Uh, somewhere uh, what did, yeah. what advice would you give to and, and I love the fact that I love what you said is that you sort of you you own the you own your terms right like I just grew up this way like I it's almost like for whatever reason whether it was your parents or the culture it it just never affected you right somehow and and so it was a little surprising to you what advice would you give to you know the 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 female founder the woman who wants to be a founder or go fundraise who might be a little afraid of this or you know here are two tips you should think about right um as you present or you talk about things um any advice you could give to someone who's who's not as stable at this and comfortable navigating this piece um i think one is um and and people learn this um you know through harsh experiences you almost have to overcompensate right so um 
you know, people assume that maybe you're not going to be as aggressive because you're a woman and, uh, you know, maybe therefore your company might not grow as fast because you're a woman. Um, so you, you know, you have two choices. Either you can try to overcompensate on those axes and um, try to present, uh, and again, this, this has to depend on whether that is part of your true personality, but if it is, then, you know, you can kind of emphasize that and be more vocal about uh, but those what, what if it's not? What if it's not part of your true personality? Exactly. So if it's not part of your true personality, I think it's important to uh, then be vocal about what your strengths are. Uh, you know, like one of the things that people know is, um, you know, maybe women are better at, um, you know, being more of team players and, uh, you know, being more thoughtful about culture and empathy. Uh, and those are, again, great traits. Uh, that are required for, um, you know, especially when you're building a startup, uh, right? Because beyond a point, there's only that much individual contribution and there's so much more that the team needs to bring to the table. Um, so I think just being thoughtful about what that is and how you want to play that up or down, uh, right? Um, that's important. Um, and I think the second part of it is just to be unapologetic about it. There are going to be some investors who are not going to culturally fit the bill. Um, you know, uh, from your perspective as a woman, and it's okay to walk away from those conversations rather than, uh, you know, changing the conversation um, to suit them. Uh, because, you know, the relationship with the investors is a pretty long relationship, and you don't want, um, you know, it, it's like you wouldn't marry somebody who, you know, doesn't um, have the same principles or ideologies. Um, you know, I don't think that you should marry an investor, uh, you know, marry in that sense, uh, if they don't uh, either. So I think it's just the other we're gonna, we're, you that's, that's a whole other discussion. We could do a whole episode <laughs> on what we should well, marry. Well, we'll clickbait the episode with you shouldn't marry an investor. That'll be right. the title. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, so, Sarita, we're, get, we're getting to the end, and, and we certainly want to give a, a shout out to our sponsors before we ask our next question, which is, um, you know, our, or to our sponsors of Wingman, obviously a leader in the conversational intelligence space, um, Revenue Cloud from Salesforce, uh, Lead 411 and Vidyard. Thank you to everybody for supporting us. Um, but what can we do to help you? How can we be supportive to you and Wingman? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, my ask is actually more directly to the two of you and maybe just part of the conversation today, right? Um, when when you all started thinking about uh, these micro-communities, like was it actually a conscious choice of thinking about the micro-communities? Was it an accident that happened? I'm just curious to hear the story yeah. behind um, behind no, that. Yeah, yeah no, I can, I can tell you uh, it was intentional uh, on our part. And this dates back to shoot 2016 was it richard yeah. 2016 i think richard and i uh, took our families to costa rica um you know for thanksgiving together and um you know we were just kind of having a chat and this whole idea of you know gotta go big 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 and you know the biggest conferences and you know rush around and barely meet people and all this this is like the opposite of what i want to do with my time if you if you know me personally, like I am not the guy who wants to, you know, go out and be the social butterfly everywhere and do all that. And so I, Richard and I, you know, sort of birthed surf and sales from that. And the whole idea was smaller, more intimate, more experiential, 
deeper relationships, right? Relationships that last and ones you can, that are much more impactful in terms of like direct deal flow or candidate flow, or just a helping hand of advice and whatnot. So it, it started there and it was, it was super intentional. And people would say, well, you know, don't you want to have like a hundred people and then a thousand people at the conference? Like you could, you know, make way more money. And it's like, no, that's not what we want to do. Um, and that, yeah, yeah. And so we kind of have kept that vibe going and then you get into, you know, 2020 and, um, you know, a little bit happenstance, but like I start Thursday night sales that, you know, turns into a community. We birth revenue, uh, rev genius out of Thursday night sales and rev genius becomes a community. Richard, I'll, I'll let him, you know, speak to things, but he's been involved with MSP modern sales pros, you know, forever. Um, so yeah, I, I, my answer is yes, it's been very intentional, you know, this micro community idea. And I, I, I keep trying to build more micro communities that have more and more intent where I'm able to, to have a stronger and stronger impact. So Richard, I'll let, I'll let you speak to it now. Yeah, I've, it's interesting because I've been doing the community thing all the way back to 2011 and 12 with Sales Hacker um, and then into Modern Sales Pros and, um, and a couple other groups, Rev Genius or, or um, Revenue Collective. And my biggest challenge has always been time. Like I, I can only devote so much time to one community or two communities, much less one that's my own, right? To a certain extent, the Surf and Sales podcast is, a, is our community too. Um, but in a very, very different way. Well, the, so, al the alumni of people who've come yeah. to the events is certainly our community. Yeah. Yes. That's what, yeah. And so, so that's where it is where Scott has a little bit more vision to it um, and, and how to create these things. I'm like, yeah, we should go create that. Right. Let's go do it. And then I get super tactical and Scott keeps doing the dream. Right. Like, as you heard, when we first started, he's like, Oh, you're going to make me record this. Like, you know, <laughs> he's always technical, technology, technologically challenged. So, um, so I, that's how I see it. I think they're really valuable. I think we're, we're going to get to a saturation point if we're not already there. I think there's room for a couple more good ones. And then it's going to be, you know, people just can't do it all, right? You just, there, there's, there is a finite number of salespeople. There's plenty of them, but then there's also a finite number of highly social salespeople who want to be a part of this right? Um, or have time for it, right? It's not always easy. A lot of these, you know, you know, they're, they're just like all the old networking events we used to go to, right? They're just more accessible and there's more of them and there's more, you know, there's certainly at different times of the day and all that, which is good, but I, it'll be interesting to see what happens in, in the saturation side of things, so. Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, what, what's been really interesting, like you'll have tried different formats and channels for these communities. Um, I'm curious, like, do you, do you have a favorite out of what you've seen uh, in terms of the ability to create like a true two-way interaction? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's different everywhere. Like, right, like Scott's Thursday Night Sales is a very different kind of community where it's very open and honest and personal. And sometimes it's sales related and, and sometimes it's life related. And, and I think that's intentional by Scott and Amy that they don't want it to be just one thing, but it, it often leads to sales conversations. Um, 
So I think that's one piece, whereas modern sales pros, which you and I are a part of, it's very tactical. How do you do this? And everybody gives everybody advice. And I think that still happens in Scott's Thursday night sales. Um, but the conversation is just, it's a different format. Like one's video and yeah. Zoom, the other is just a big email reply all change. So yeah, as much more, I, I would argue that, that the ones that I'm involved in and feel strongest, uh, you know, about in terms of their future and their staying powers are the ones that are personal, hyper-personal, yep. right? Having a conversation back and forth, seeing people, you know, getting super raw, super real, super open. You know, I, I, look, God bless everybody. I'm not here or interested to, in talking about maximizing your open rates by tweaking the subject line of your email a million times so your open rate increases by a tenth of a percentage point. That does nothing for me, okay? That's like, I might as well take an Ambien and go to bed. That does absolutely nothing for me whatsoever, right? What is interesting to me is having real conversations with people who are trying to figure out how to get better at selling, how to get better at being a, a leader, how to get better at building and scaling a company, how to deal with all the personal problems that we all have, whether it's addiction or loss or pandemic stuff, or mental health issues, all of this stuff. That's real, that's raw, that's personal. To me, that will stand the test of, of time, not a Slack community where everybody fires messages all over the place a million times a day, or a long email thread that is never ending with 9,000 people's opinions on you know, how to formulate the best uh, you know, breakup email. That doesn't do it for me. So just, I think, you know, everybody gets to, you said it best, like you pick and choose your tribe where you want to go. It's your time and on your terms, Shruti. That was your quote that I wrote down, like on your time and terms. Uh, and I think people will gravitate to the ones that make the, that have the strongest impact on them. And frankly, I think they'll gravitate to the ones where the figurehead of the communities are somebody that they, they vibe with and that they, they believe in and that they trust and have been helpful to them. That's my prediction. Awesome. I think they would have achieved true equality when there is like for every Slack community that I'm a part of, there's also a channel for men in XYZ versus just women in XYZ. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. That's good. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, spending spending time with us. I know it's, I know it's late there. Um, Richard and I wrote down a bunch of killer notes we really appreciate you coming on the show and and also appreciate wingman support of uh of the surf and sales podcast so thanks thanks so much ruthie it's good to see you again thanks scott thanks richard yeah it was Great my pleasure and for those at home keeping score i'm batting 750 i have not i've only been called out for being on mute one time in our first four so episodes. You're, you're you're really raising you're stepping your game up in 2021 I'm working. well I'm done working well it. done <laughs> all right till next time everybody all right